Good morning. It's good to be with you. That, that song was Lauren's grandfather's favorite song, and so we, uh, we both hear his tenor voice sing that when we, we sing it together. There's a question that, that gets asked this time of year. It's, it's usually a question that we ask each other almost in passing. Are you going home for Christmas? It's a question. And I think in some ways it's a, it's a simple question, but I think in other ways it's a deeper question. Are you going home for Christmas? In Isaiah 35, the prophet is speaking to people who would give anything to go back home. And they're not sure that that's ever going to happen. And the prophet knows that they're, they're wrestling with, is life ever going to be like that again? Are we ever going to be in that place again? Am I ever going to see those faces again? Open your Bible up to Isaiah 35. Because it's into those kinds of searching and seeking hearts that these words were first spoken. The desert and the dry land will be glad. The wilderness will rejoice and blossom like the crocus. They, they will burst into bloom and rejoice with joy and singing. They will receive the glory of Lebanon and the splendor of Carmel and Sharon. They will see the Lord's glory, the splendor of our God. Strengthen the weak hands and support the unsteady knees. Say to those who are panicking, be strong, don't fear. Here's your God coming with vengeance, with divine retribution against your enemies. God will come to save you. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened. The ears of the deaf will be cleared. Then the lame will leap like the deer. The tongue of the speechless will sing. Waters will spring up where water isn't supposed to spring up. Water will spring up in the desert, streams in the wilderness. He's saying that West Texas will be beautiful. <laughs> the burning sand will become a pool, the thirsty ground, fountains of water, the jackal's habitat, a pasture, grass will become reeds and rushes. And a highway will be there. It'll be called the holy way. The unclean won't travel on it. Because, you need to hear this, because they will have been made clean. Okay, the unclean won't travel on it. It will be for those walking on that way. Even fools won't get lost on it. Again, because they won't be fools any longer. No lion will be there. No predator will go up on it. None of these will be there. Only the redeemed will walk on it. The Lord's ransomed ones will return and enter Zion with singing. With everlasting joy upon their heads, happiness and joy will overwhelm them. Grief 
and groaning will flee away. Are you going home for Christmas? Is there a home for you left to go to? It's, it's difficult to talk about what it, it feels like to be saved. And so God uses many different voices and many different images through those voices to try to help us understand what it feels like to be saved. Because God knows that you can talk about being saved, but that's different than experiencing what it's like to be saved. And words escape us, right? They're not adequate to really capture what it feels like to be saved. So, so God tries a lot of different images and, and ideas, right? Being saved is like being offered forgiveness. It's like getting a clean slate. Being saved, it's like being given maturity. It's like growing up in all the right ways. Being saved is like being given freedom. It's like getting to choose who you're going to be for the rest of your life because you realize you don't have to be who you've always been. In Isaiah 35, the image that we are given touches on all of those other images, but it's, it's different. And this is what I, I want you to try to grasp this morning that Isaiah the prophet's trying to say to us that being saved is like getting to go to a place you long for, deep in your bones, a place you always have dreamed of. Being saved in Isaiah 35 is like getting to go home to find that everything at home is just the way you always hoped it could be. That's what being saved feels like. Now, I know we come to, to church and, and we come to a sermon and we have different expectations of what a sermon is going to offer us. And in many cases, we want a preacher who, who's talking to us to open up the Bible and, and have prepared carefully and, and have a section of text that we're then going to have explained to us. And if the preacher's any good, hopefully they'll explain it in a way that's clear and maybe they'll use a, an outline that we can fill out and, and then we'll feel like we understand the text better that the, the, the sermon has been focused on. And there is nothing at all that's wrong with that. I just want to tell you, I won't be doing that. Because you don't need me to explain Isaiah 35 to you. I just did. What you and I need this morning is to have the journey, the experience that those ancient Israelites had when they first had these words. I don't think just spoken to them, but words that, well, they're words that you sing. There's words that we sing around Christmas. There's feelings that we have around Christmas. One of the most famous songs, I suppose, that we've all heard at least Bits and pieces of, all right. even if you're running away from those 12 songs that get played over and over, you hear them. I'll be home for Christmas. You can count on me. 
But there's a sorrow in that song, right? I'll be home for Christmas if only in my dreams. Isaiah 35 is promising us that what Christmas means is we get to go home. So what does that mean? Well, it means a lot of things. A lot of different things to all of us. When I say the word home, what courses through you? I spent this week thinking about that, trying to journey there in my own heart. And one of the things I found that became important to me was to picture certain places. And lo and behold, we live in a, in a time of wonders. We live in a time of Google Earth, where you can type in the addresses of all the places you've lived and you can look at them. So if you'll indulge me this morning, I want to take us on a little bit of a journey of what it feels like for me to go home again. This first picture, I'm here because those two homes are there. My parents were next door neighbors. Those are the houses. This one over here, the one with the car in front of it, it is 896 square feet. It's valued at just around a million dollars in Santa Clara, California, right now. I kind of wish it was still our home. Uh, I'm kidding. I remember the white home because my mom's parents still lived, lived there for a little bit when I, I was able to make some memories. I never really set foot in my, my dad's home. They, they only actually lived at home together, you know, as teenagers in these two houses for one year. But it was the one year, it's all it took, they fell in love and then they moved into a home of their own. But I'm here because those houses are, are there. Now, the first home I remember is, is the next picture. Oh, no, I have it out of order or something. Uh, let's jump to this home. No, yeah, go back. Okay. The, the home that I remember best uh, is, is this, this one that you're looking at. As, as I was just beginning to form a lot of memories... Right? You have homes that you, you kind of have just little bits and pieces of, of remembering some things. But in this home, uh, I remember starting to understand that, that for my, tr- my, my family's life was deeply connected to, to the life of the church. Right, That my, my family was the church family. So I remember in this house, now I want to say some things. First is, it was, you see that roof line on the first story? That's all that existed when I lived there, so I'm kind of irritated that these people get a whole second story. So we at least pretended like we liked each other more uh, because we had less space. But we lived there, and I remember my parents having people over for small group, and I remember my parents having people over for Bible studies. I I remember um, singing in that living room. I remember praying in that living room. This is also the home we lived in in 1989 when there was this huge earthquake. Uh, you may remember the Bay Bridge collapsing, and so we lived there, and I, all of the, the windows were broken out of it, and, 
and we were not sure we were going to be able to live in it and all that kind of, all those kinds of questions and fears. And when I see that home, I'm immediately brought back to that day um, of, of both feeling scared but also being with my mother and father and somehow trusting that I was, we were going to be okay, that everything was going to be okay. There was a, a back patio on this home, and uh, it, it gave us space, me and my sisters, to kind of be on our own but still be in a place where my mom felt like we were safe. And it was great to be able to be people apart from the rules and the watching eyes of our, our parents, right? We just, we were constantly doing stuff and getting in trouble and then threatening the other one with blackmail. If you tell mom this, I'll tell mom you did this and this and this. Okay, kind of make this uneasy piece until the next afternoon and would start all over again. You can play a lot outside in Northern California all year long, right? The weather's just, it's for wimps, you know, it's (laughs) mid-70s all the time. So we, we were outside all the time, and I remember that. The other thing I remember about this home is, uh, I had a bedroom, and uh, because I grew up with two younger sisters, they always shared a bedroom, and I always had my own bedroom. This was a point of much contention in our, our family. But because I had a little extra space in my bedroom, when my dad's father got sick with pancreatic cancer, they moved a twin bed into my room. And so my grandfather uh, went through the process of dying in my bedroom. And I remember nights uh, when he couldn't sleep and he uh, was up coughing and, and hurting and I would uh, crawl on my knees in the dark and I would hold his hand and tell him it was going to be okay. And when he got really sick, my dad and he were talking, and my, my dad told me it was the last week of his life. My, my grandfather was the, the gruffest, kind of crustiest old man. You've, you know, they don't make them like that anymore kind of thing. I remember in a different house, the house, the picture was missing. My mother came home. I was probably seven. My mother came home. He was smoking a cigarette on the front porch. And I was halfway up a tree with a chainsaw using it <laughs> under his direction. He was not allowed to be alone with me uh, after that day. Uh, hold it steady, son. Hold it steady. I remember that. He started weeping. And he told my dad, I don't even have a home to die in. I had to borrow yours. And my dad said, it's okay, Dad. This is your home too. Okay, next picture. They're not all this hard. So this is the house I grew up in uh, when I got into high school. And uh, we had moved to Sacramento. My dad was at a different church at that point. Uh, and, I, and so there's all kinds of feelings when I see that house that you know, high school was not, I wouldn't call that the prime of my life, as you might guess. Uh, I've never remotely been cool or anything like that. And so 
I mean, when you're a dork, people tell you you're a dork in high school, right? If, if you have somehow not figured that out, someone will help you figure it out. Uh, you know, I remember learning how to drive out in front of this house on this street. My father saying things to me uh, that I'll never forget while I was learning how to drive. And I remember obsessing about, for whatever reason, we were just really wanting to get this yard perfect. And if you know, and I'm really irritated at this picture because they've let the yard go. But, and by the way, they have a pool in the back now. I never had a pool. All these houses get better after we leave. Are you noticing that? Anyway, I spent hours working on that yard, mowing it, fertilizing it, edging it, all that kind of stuff. It's never, it's kind of a never-ending project. I remember Christmases in that house and Thanksgivings in that house. My parents always brought people in who didn't have anywhere else to go, and they had a welcome place at that table. I remember that it was in that living room that I decided I wanted to be baptized. I remember every Sunday morning, my dad would be sitting right in that front room there, uh, and he would have some instrumental music on, you know, that were like hymns, some sort of Christian music, without words on it, in it, and he would be reading through his Bible and preparing to preach, getting his heart and his mind in the right place to preach. I remember sometimes getting up just to be in the living room with him. And I remember one of those early Sunday mornings telling him, Dad, I'm ready. I'm ready for my faith not to just be something I have to do, but something I choose to do. Okay, let's go to the next one. So this is not any place I ever lived. It's actually uh, a place that my mom's parents owned in Redding, California, which is kind of far northern California, where the land is a little more affordable. And so my grandfather had three acres of land. And for someone who lived in cramped little neighborhood houses, it was like, it was my favorite place to go because I I could explore the woods and I could go out and, and get away from, I didn't have to hear anyone from my family's voice for hours if I wanted to, right? And so I'd go get lost. And, and so at some point, we started going to my grandfather's house, my, my mom's parents' house for Christmas. Um, and in Redding, if, if the conditions are just right, it can snow. And I will never forget a particular Christmas when we went to bed and it was really cold and we were really hopeful. When we woke up the next morning, it was, everything was covered in snow, and it was like magic, right? And, and we loved going there. Uh, it wasn't a place, maybe, maybe it was more special to us because it, was, it, it never got old. We were just, we were never there quite enough. Uh, several years ago now, uh, my mom's dad, you see how the garage is separate from the house? Um, it was right between Thanksgiving and Christmas that he Uh, He kind of lost all hope, and he went into that garage, and he ended his life. Home is a complicated place. Home doesn't go all the ways that you wish it would. The first place Laura and I lived together were the picturesque shared apartments 
Bring the picture up, Heather. I'm glad you don't know what they look like, uh, just from guessing. Man, those are ugly. Sorry, Phil and whoever else from ACU, but those are ugly. Um, Man, they're ugly. But it was our first place to live together. You never forget the first place you live when you're newly married. We, We didn't have anything. I mean, we had nothing. I was like supposed to be like the RA for Sherrod, which meant I had to keep knocking on my neighbor's door to make sure that it really was incense that they were burning in their apartment and not something a little more creative. Um, but it meant we got to live there rent-free, right? And that was the big part of that. And I was preaching in early, and that was the place we had our first dinner in our first place had a had couple friends over for the first time, had my family. My dad was, was working on a doctor of ministry at ACU, and so he would come and stay with us, and, and we were able to have him in our home, and I remember how all of that felt. And then this last picture is uh, a home that we lived in in the DFW area, Carrollton. It's the home, it's the house where we brought both girls home from the hospital. Um, it's the house that I came home from the hospital after all three of my cancer-related surgeries years ago. Uh, it's a home that when we drive back to Dallas, if we get a chance, um, we either drive by or we walk by and we, we just try to remember, right? You try to recapture what it feel like to be in that home, to be in that house. Are you getting to go home for Christmas? Right now, I I lived in over 14 different houses growing up and through now, but these are the ones that really stand out to me. If someone were to ask me, "Are are you going home? There's a part in my heart that pictures these places. And more than that, pictures people who, who made those places home. Isaiah 35 is telling you, you know that deep ache inside of you to go back to those places and to be with those people? Isaiah 35 is saying that a day is coming when that's exactly what what you're going to get to do. And it's going to be better than any single home you ever lived in. Right? Because you've lived enough now that you couldn't pick just one. And you wouldn't pick just one group of people at one time. Right? I mean, if I was going to build the perfect version of home, it would be this miraculous place where, where all the best aspects of the places we live would all be in the same space on the earth. And not only would it be this amazing place where everything was restored, which that's, that's what Isaiah 35 is trying to say. Can you picture our arid desert wilderness as a beautiful garden of Eden? Can you see it? Can you see the physical places that you've called home better than they ever were? The, the way that, that they might have existed only in your heart and in your imagination. Can you see it? Because that's a real place. And you're going there. And then can you think of all the people that made those places feel like home? And all of those people, some of whom we can't pick up the phone and call. We, we can't get on a plane and go visit them. We can't get back to them. They will be there because it wouldn't be home without them. 
And not just that, it's, it's even better than that. He says, it's not just that it's the place it was supposed to always be, and it's not just that all the people that you'd ever want are going to be there. They're going to be the best versions of themselves. They're going to be who they always were supposed to be. Did you hear that in verses 5 and 6? It's exactly what Jesus says to John when he asks him, are you the one we've been waiting for, or should we wait for another? And he says, tell John this, the deaf can hear and the blind can see and the lame can walk. In Isaiah 35, that's, he's singing those words to John. He's trying to tell John, I'm the one and I'm taking us home. And when we get there, there won't be any blind people there because they'll, they'll finally be able to see. And there won't be any deaf people there because they'll finally be able to hear. And, and everybody who's ever wanted to walk will get to walk. And people who don't know how to speak, they'll be the ones who are singing. It's not just the best possible version of home and the best possible guest list. It's the best possible version of who you and I were supposed to be. I keep seeing this image in my mind of being able to go to a home, to sit around a table, and it's not just that I get to be the son who I was always supposed to be, or the older brother I was always supposed to be, but in that very same place, I get to be the husband I was supposed to be, and the daddy I was supposed to be, and and if I'm fortunate enough, I'm going to get to experience in that place, all at the same time, The kind of grandfather I was supposed to be and the great-grandfather I was always supposed to be. Me and you and all of us in one place together, healed and whole and redeemed. You know, I... I know you want to go home for Christmas. We all do. And it's why we work so hard to make things perfect. And yet I have found that no matter how much I try to make a Christmas celebration perfect, it never goes exactly the way I want it to go. There's always something missing. Maybe there's someone who is missing. And there's a part deep down in my, my soul that, that longs for something better that longs for a version of home that I don't know how to orchestrate or, or make happen. And, and brothers and sisters, that is the truth of this story. Home isn't a place. Home isn't just people. Home is more than that. And... And home, I've heard people say over and over in my life, home is where the heart is. And Isaiah would say, no, home is where God's heart is. God's heart reaching out to each one of us, embracing each one of us, assuring us that no matter what has happened, everything's going to be okay. And no matter what we've done, more than anything else, we belong. You belong. That feeling of home, it's joy. And that feeling of home that is joy is a gift. It's not something you or I can make happen when we decide to. It's something that breaks through from that home we're headed to.
We have these glimpses. We're able to have glances. We're able to have moments. And instead of us trying to recreate those moments every single year and running ourselves ragged and saying it's got to be just this way and we've got to have just this dish and these people have got to be just at this table, what if instead of, of being stressed out and worried and hectic, what we would do is try to create a space in our lives for God's home to happen. And in those fleeting moments when it does happen, and brothers and sisters, it does happen because you know exactly the kind of feeling I'm talking about. Instead of trying to force it, we would just have hearts that are filled with gratitude that we've tasted it. And we've heard just a little bit, and we have experienced just a little bit now of what it's going to be like forever then. See, Isaiah 35 doesn't say that you've got a little bit of joy waiting for you up ahead. He says it is everlasting joy. He says that it is a joy that never comes to an end. Look, I know that you'd have a different slideshow, and I know you have different faces and names, and I know you have different memories from home that are both good and challenging and difficult and heartbreaking. But brothers and sisters, Isaiah 35 wants you to believe somewhere in the deepest part of who you are that there is a Christmas coming when you will finally be home. And we'll all be there. Not as who we are but who God will help us one day be. And it's joy. We're going to sing now, and as we do, our shepherds and their wives will be standing in various places throughout the room. They're there to, to pray with you. They're there to, to talk with you. They're there to receive you. And so if you have anything in your heart this morning that you'd like to share with a, a Christian couple who cares about you and loves you, Please go to them as we stand and sing. I'm going to ask them to stand up real quickly so you can kind of see where they are. Go to them. They want to receive you. Let's sing together.